Central Baptist Church. It's really great for us and a privilege for us to host this meeting. And uh, we're looking forward to a good meeting tonight as we have some discussions and uh, sharing and feedback later on. Let me just pray and, and then we're going to spend some minutes just in the word. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for each church represented, each person. Thank you for the work that you are doing. Lord, gathered together as those created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which you have prepared in advance for us to do. And so, Lord, in, in this continued challenge, the unfolding of ministry day by day, week by week, pray that you would uh, equip us, enable us, and Lord, may you be pleased to use us uh, for great fruitfulness uh, in the particular areas that you've placed us. And so, even as we turn now to the scriptures, do pray that you would inspire us, encourage us, and Lord, as we've been singing tonight, that you would be our vision. And our response, Lord, so easy to sing these words, I surrender all. But please enable us to do so uh, sincerely uh, from the depths of our hearts, we pray. Amen. Well, I want to speak tonight uh, somewhat topically rather than from one particular passage and begin with a statement tonight by saying that the prosperous things in your life some of you experiencing some kind of uh, delight and prosperity at the moment, along with the painful things in your life, can be explained by one or two ways. It, it can't be both ways. It has to be one way or the other. And I'm going to turn to the book of Esther, and we're going to jump around a little bit, but we see these two different and opposing views present. They are, in fact, two opposing worldviews represented by two different men. All of us here tonight would hold to one of those particular views. And so I would be bold enough to say to pastors and leaders here tonight, each one of you have a worldview. The way you interpret the events in your own life and even in the broader context of the country and the current events of the world. There are those here tonight, I'm sure that there may be some, like Haman, who believe that the strong and influential people of this world, those who are kings and uh, men and women in power, presidents, prime ministers, determine the course of history. And so there are those who believe that people are in control. And if we go to the book of Esther, we can see immediately over here that Haman was closely connected to the king. And we don't have time, I'm not going to look at all these passages, but this king was a mighty king. He ruled from what we would today consider to be Pakistan in the east all the way into northern Sudan, as we would understand it in Africa. 127 provinces that he, he reigned over. He was a powerful king. He was a rich king. He was an influential king. Well, Haman was closely aligned. He had the ability to bend the ear of the king. And we find, as this particular book opened, that he, con he convinces the king that it would be a good thing to get rid of the Jews. Chapter 3, verse 8. It is not in the best interests, uh, the king's best interest, to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. 
And, of course, the bribe comes along with it. I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. Well, Haman is delighted. The king agrees, and uh, the plan is put in place. The wheels are set in motion. Letters were sent out by couriers to all the kings and provinces with an instruction to kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, and to plunder their goods. Well, the deed was as good as done. And uh, the couriers went out, and, and they did, did as they were commanded. Uh, Haman believing that his plan indeed was going to unfold under the authority and the power of this powerful and influential king. But then as we move on in the book of Esther, we also see that there are those today, perhaps even among us here tonight, like Mordecai, who believe that God has a plan and that God is intimately involved in the course of history in the unfolding of that plan. Since an edict from the king was the law of the Medes and Persians, so we would understand that as something being set in stone. It could not be repealed. <laughs> the situations for the Jews, humanly speaking, was hopeless. They were in pain. They were concerned, in desperation. Mordecai sends a message to Esther. We're familiar with the story. She was his adopted daughter, ended up in the courts of the... And let me pause there. She ended up in the courts of the king. Chance? What did you think about that? Well, Mordecai calls on her to approach the king on behalf of the people, and she's not very enthusiastic. I think we know the story. She's afraid to go into the king because she might very well be put to death if the king doesn't accept her entering his presence without an invitation. She thinks that her life will be put in danger, and so Mordecai gets a message back that she's hesitating. She does not want to do this. And so he responds again, and he sends another message, and he asks her to consider the gravity of her own well-being, her own safety and situation, and then he refers to her role in history. And I do want to read that uh, particular uh, passage, chapter 4, verse 13. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise up for the Jews from another place. You see where his confidence is? But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now those words, for such a time as this, it conveys the thought, we ought to be thinking about this, God's appointment, God's purposes unfolding. These words pointing to God's involvement in the affairs of the world, God accomplishing his purposes, God orchestrating, God intervening. And so Mordecai challenges Esther to see that it's a time of crisis in, in the history of Israel, and it's a time for divine intervention. Him believing that God will use a human agent to bring about the deliverance of his people. And so Mordecai's charge to Esther was done with a view to what we call the providence of God. And so I thought tonight I would like to speak to the issue of this wonderful doctrine 
of the providence of God. And the question that each of us needs to settle in our own minds, either man is in control or God is in control. You can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. So is Esther's presence in the king's court merely coincidence? Was it just a chance that she was there, or was it providential? Question you need to ask yourself, do you believe, do you see life in this world consisting merely of an accumulation of haphazard chance events and coincidences? Or is God constantly at work in the affairs of the world, bringing about all that he has determined? Now let me just take an aside and take a few minutes on the providence of God. I'm no Latin expert, but I understand that this word providence comes from two Latin words, pro and vide, and uh, pro meaning before and and, uh, vide to see. It means to see something beforehand. But not just that in the context of the scripture, but to see to it. So it's not just a gathering of information, but it's information, it's knowledge, and and we know from Psalm 139 that God even knows our thoughts before we've thought them. God seeing, God, God knowing, but God acting, God seeing to it. And so the providence of God, meaning that God sees and plans accordingly. God sees beforehand everything that is going to happen, and he prepares that all things fit into his purpose. How does that work out in practice? And so I want to consider just two painful life stories from the Bible to try and demonstrate, to see how this wonderful doctrine uh, works, how God is at work. And then I'm just going to end with an hope and encouragement to you if you're finding yourself now at a particular place of hardship and difficulty. Many of you, I know, have lived through some tremendous pain, and you have a story to tell. And I want to encourage you tonight in the providence of God that this is not outside of the scope of what God is doing and God is accomplishing and that what God is bringing about. Now let me go to the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, his son. Again, a well-known story. Before they go up onto the mountain, Isaac said to his father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Genesis 22 verse 7. Abraham answered, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And when God had shown Abraham a ram caught in the thicket and the thorns, he says, uh, uh, Genesis 22, 14 says, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Now if you have a look at Genesis 22, the word provide is is used repeatedly. The word is see. That's what it means, see. Very simply, Abraham is saying to Isaac, God will see for himself the lamb. Do you get the point? God will see to it. He will provide. The Lord will see. God is not a spectator outside of history. He's not looking on and simply watching us blunder ahead in our lives or in our churches or in our association. God is at work 
He, he, he never simply sees. He does something. He's God. He's not a passive observer. God is looking. God is acting. God is orchestrating. God is intervening. God is unfolding his redemptive purposes. So providence means the active sustaining and governing of the universe his way. Second story, again a well-known story, Joseph, mistreated by his brothers. You know the story? Uh, he was the father's uh, favorite. Uh, I think Joseph was a brat, bit of a brat in the early days as a young child. Probably the thing that grated his brothers the most were the dreams that he shared with them. In those dreams, he saw the ten older brothers bowing down before him, the youngest, perhaps we would say, little pipsqueak. And then one day, wearing his new brightly colored coat, his father had, him, uh, had made for him, he sends him out to check up on his brothers. And he finds, he finds them in a place called Dothan. And when, he, when they saw him coming, Genesis chapter 37, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. Let's see what becomes of his dreams. Well, we know the story. Reuben persuaded them not to kill the boy. They throw him into the pit in the wilderness. He suggests after throwing him in the pit, they had lunch and they were eating. They saw a caravan of Ishmaelites heading their way. Well, let's make something out of this opportunity. Now, I'm going to run through a sequence of events and, 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 and thoughts and I want you to see something of the providence of God. So Joseph here, uh, being sold after being thrown in a pit, that's bad, we would say. That's not prosperous. That's painful. Well, it's not so bad because before they reached the pit, some Midianite traders came by, they saw Joseph, and they pulled him out. That's good. Well, not so good because they sold him to the Ishmaelites who dragged him to Egypt, where Jews were appreciate, weren't appreciated, and they sold him as a slave. That's bad. Well, not so bad, because they sold him to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers who did not hate the Jews. That's good. Well, not so good, because Potiphar's wife began to hit on Joseph and tried to seduce him. That's bad. Well, not so bad, because Joseph refused her advances. That's good. Well, not so good, because she lied. And she said that Joseph had tried to rape her, and he was thrown in prison. That's bad. Well, not so bad, because in prison he met a chief cupbearer and chief baker, because Joseph was able to interpret their dreams, vowed they would remember him when they were released. That's good. Well, not so good, because they forgot him. Do, do, do you see the pattern? It, 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 it's, it's up and down. And, and then we know as the story unfolds, Pharaoh himself begin, begins to be troubled by his dreams, couldn't find anybody to interpret them. Suddenly, on a particular day at a particular time, the cupbearer remembers his former cellmate's ability to interpret dreams. Jo Joseph is brought before Pharaoh, interpreted the dreams, tells him there are going to be seven years of abundance, seven years of famine. The invisible hand of God at work. God saw to it, and he made plans so that Joseph's brothers, when they threw him in the pit, would fit into the purpose of God. Now, how do you reconcile that? I cannot reconcile that, but it doesn't trouble me, because God is bigger than I am. 
God is bigger than you are. We are finite, we're limited, we even have a sinful nature, and, and, and God is infinite, and God is all-knowing, and God is all-powerful, and God is all-wise. And so it doesn't matter that we can't reconcile this. It, it leads us into worship. It leads us into a sense of awe. This is our God who is unfolding His purposes in this world. Was it coincidence that the caravan passed at that particular moment? Was it pure chance the baker and cupbearer were in jail with Joseph? Every step of the way, God saw to it. God saw to it. God went before Joseph. God worked each problem and setback, made sure that these served the very purposes of God. And even later on, we have the words uh, of Joseph when the brothers are distressed or a- and, and, and concerned about him being angry with them. This is what he says. You know these words so well. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me, yeah? And by the way, responsible for their actions. They made a, freedom, a, 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 a choice in freedom to make those sinful decisions. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me, yeah? For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. And so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh, lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You see, God had set in motion his redemptive purposes way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. And then nothing is going to stand in the way of that particular plan and purpose. Later on, of course, when Jacob dies, we have a repeat of the same issue. Uh, brothers are scared. They're now going to be uh, killed or, or, or punished by Joseph. And Joseph hears this and he breaks down and he weeps. Don't be afraid, he says. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. One last comment, and then just my conclusion. Isn't it true that we have the same situation of concurrence when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus? We have Wicked men who put Jesus on the cross. We have men who conspired against Jesus. Sinful men doing so out of malice and hatred. Responsible for what they did. Accountable to God for their evil deeds. But at the same time, is it not true? It was God's plan to send his son to die for sinners. Peter affirms in Acts chapter 2 verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so, folk, I do ask you tonight, and and, uh, the doctrine of providence, consider it, please. It's so comforting in times of distress and difficulty. Are you like Aaron, or are you like Mordecai? Who do you believe holds the reins of history? Three comments, very briefly in closing. 
How can the doctrine of providence be of value to you? Well, number one, it can help you to be patient through difficult times. And I want to tell you, if you don't know it yet, if you've not experienced, difficult times will come. They happen. In the unfolding of life, we experience hardship for various reasons. And as I understand this doctrine of providence and some of the stories I've relayed to you, sometimes people, even in the ministry in our local churches, have evil intentions. Not outside of the scope of how God will use those for the benefit and the blessing of his kingdom. And even as Joseph said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intends for good. Number two. The doctrine of providence can be of value to you. It can help you to be thankful in times of prosperity. We see that every good and perfect gift is from above. What you have from, uh, in your life is, is from God. That's, that's what the doctrine of providence teaches us. It's not because of lady luck. It's not because you were at the right place at the right time. No, no, God orchestrating. And then just thirdly, the doctrine of providence can help you be confident and at least at rest, since our God is strong and faithful. And I'll conclude with that verse that we quote so easily, but the doctrine of of providence undergirds it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not all things are good, but all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And Lord, I do pray that everything we study in your word, particularly the revelation of yourself and your mighty deeds, would lead us forward, Lord, in faith, in growing faith. And Lord, also you conforming us more and more to the likeness of Jesus And Lord, enabling us, I pray, to trust you, knowing that you are God, not only all-powerful and all-knowing, but also all-wise. Bless our meeting, even as we proceed, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.